HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece has been brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Today's episode 29 of Feast Your Ears and the first episode in season three. They say third time's a charm, so hopefully this season will be better than the last two. Um, I'm really enjoying doing this show. I hope that those of you out there that are listening are enjoying listening to it. Um, I'd be happy to hear from you if you have any questions about the show or any ideas for guests. Um, You can reach me at harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. And I really am trying. I would love to interview an astronaut on my show. So I figured I would reach out to anyone who's listening. If anybody knows an astronaut, um, please put them in touch with me. I'd love to interview an astronaut about what it's like to eat and cook in space. Joining me today in the studio is Daly Crafton. Um, Daly is a friend of mine, a fellow parent uh, at PS 132 here in Williamsburg, uh, an avid home brewer, fermenter, uh, yeast whisperer, design <laughs> guru, uh, and the only person that I know who doesn't have a cell phone uh, at the moment. I have it, but it's not connected to any sort of network <laughs> right. it's a glorified so, <laughs> ipod right now <laughs> so if you want to reach daily you pretty much have to go knock on his door or send him an email you can call the landline yeah if i'm home right <laughs> um so uh thanks for joining me today daily yeah a pleasure my to, pleasure to be studio. here for sure um when uh when you meet somebody and they inevitably ask you what it is that you do because that's the question that we ask here right in, right in in this in this time in this place um what do you say what i do like what i do for work yeah what do you do like, like you know like let's let's say that you know someone comes by your beer box open house and they say oh what do you do i would say i'm a graphic designer and i run lockstep studio which is a branding and identity studio focusing on craft breweries and local community businesses that's what i do <laughs> <laughs> to get money, right. you know, for <laughs> the, pleasure. It's the fermentation stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. The the other things you do, you mentioned before we started the show that you had just had your hands in some compost. 
Yeah. So, I mean, this afternoon, right, like, just before Harry came to pick me up, I took the compost out because it was very full and very, very fermented, I guess, <laughs> very decomposed. <laughs> Put it in there, and it just splashed up on my hands, and it, it smelled bad. I guess the conversation was about, like, you know, be careful about uh, comparing that to, like, people's mouths or just places where <laughs> microbes are sorry you know it's gonna get like this on this show sorry yeah yeah we're gonna be talking a lot of we'll, we'll talk quite a bit about microbes um <clears throat> so in your in your work with lockstep studio how did you how did you become a graphic designer i that's a pretty, that's actually a pretty good story so i mean you know in the i had an artistic knack in elementary and junior high and high school and all that drawing and painting etc all the normal like school art type things that you would do printmaking so on and so forth and even like to the extent of like designing soccer uniforms in my in my notebook it's <laughs> just like does like how like the stripes win or whatever they were pretty terrible i'm sure um but then uh i actually sang a lot i'm, I'm a trained opera singer believe it or not hmm. and uh when i first went to school my declared major was voice performance, and I, I was a voice performance major for one day, and that evening, <laughs> I just had a realization that I was like, I will never make any money right. being an opera singer. Probably you, not. Probably not. Yeah. Some people are very famous opera singers, sure. but there's like 10 of them, yep. and I was probably not going to be one. So I changed my major to graphic design because it was artistic, but also in a way that people would pay you to do it like over right. and over and over and over again. Right. You weren't sitting in a studio making a bunch of stuff and hoping that people were going to wander in or you're going to become famous in the art world or your stuff was going to go to auctions. Right. Right. Uh, and I mean, I'm not really, I don't, I wouldn't consider myself that good of an artist anyways, but I'm, I think I'm good at design and brands and making sure like that look is tight for your business. And yeah, I mean, one, of one of the things that, you know, we, we've talked about daily and I um, also uh, are, two of the founders of a, of a company called Beerbox, which is a beer-making kit delivery company. Um, if you go to beerbox.co, you can see Daily's design work. Spelled the German way, B-I-E-R. B-I-E-R-B-O-X dot C-O. And the, the idea behind the company is to provide a platform for really excellent homebrew recipes to be delivered to people once a quarter or more often, but the ideal is once a quarter who, you know, might be homebrewers who are lapsed or have a bunch of equipment or don't know what they're going to brew next. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty perfect if you feel like you really do want to homebrew, but you're pressed for time. Yeah. Uh, highly recommend it. So in a meeting recently, we were, we were talking about branding and Daly's done all the branding for, for beer box and he brought up something and, and I think you wrote an article, right. That appeared online about breweries specifically, mm-hmm. all these craft breweries that are, that are blowing up whose branding is a little bit all over the place. Yeah. It's a little bit, uh, I think the best word for it is piecemeal. So uh, this occurred to us, we were, um, we had done some work for a particular brewery, uh, and they um, they were getting their packaging designed by the printer. So they were getting promotional materials designed by the distributor. They were getting their tap handles designed by the tap handle manufacturer, and you know their web designed by uh, some other person. So you have at least four designers 
Um, I mean, which is like, you know, on a large brand, you might have four designers, but like four different companies designing it. Not like, you know, not like one creative director with like four designers that he's like making sure it's consistent. Like it was just like doing it in a vacuum. And so their, their brand was looking piecemeal. And And I I think this is something that comes up, not just in breweries. Yeah, of course. It comes up in food brands. I mean, you know, being in in this industry, I'm I'm sure that it comes up in other branding as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so the piece I wrote is basically just, you know, and for obvious reasons, we're a design studio. We want that business, but, (laughs) but, but it is true that if you hire a branding agency to control that from top to bottom, and the branding agency designs everything, and then they coordinate with the vendors, the printer, the tap handle producer, the web developer, etc. Then your stuff is going to look a lot more tight. You're going to have a lot more cohesive look and feel, and it's going to be less confusing to your consumers and um, translate into you know better brand recognition over the long term for yeah. sure. Absolutely. Um, I want to move over into talking about food. Have you done any design for food brands? Food brands, beer box. Yeah. <laughs> Do you count beer box as a food brand? I mean, you know, I, we we were also discussing uh, one of the questions that I ask guests before they come on the show is if they could only have one food for the rest of their life, what would it be? And mm-hmm. you said beer. I said beer. And there was a guy who there's an article a guy lived for 40 days yes. only on beer. Yeah, I mean that was uh, a certain order of monks. I don't remember which one. Would they would their fast was to only drink this Doppelbach for forty days for Lent for Lent yeah, yeah. their their the thing they gave up for Lent was everything except for beer, <laughs> <laughs> which is awesome. I mean that sounds like you know I know lot, lots lots I don't know lots I don't know lots of people right now that that still adhere to Lent but the most common thing I hear from the people that I do are that they give up alcohol or they give up meat right those are like the two most common i feel like yeah um but the, so the, the idea the, of giving it all up the most did the reverse yeah <laughs> actually we're going to keep the alcohol yeah, and we're gonna keep everything the beer. else up makes sense to me i mean makes, i could i could get way more down with lent if that was how it was I know. approached oh, always. okay god yeah Fine. <laughs> i'll just drink for 40 days it's yeah cool. it's perfect i mean the guy i don't i mean it's not like it's a funny question because like any almost anyone chews you food i don't think would be nutritive long-term by itself sure so i was like well i might as well go for the favorite one then yeah (laughs) so beer beer it was that was what i would eat all right the only that's the food i would have if i couldn't have anything else (laughs) (laughs) what did uh what did you have for breakfast today today i made myself a bacon egg and cheese uh english muffin um i like to protein load in the morning and then the rest of the day i usually eat just some vegetables so or you know kind of vegetarian i think i think that's a good way to go i think that's what i that's that's what feels good to me is if if i eat you know and sometimes it'll be yogurt in the morning which i feel like is a pretty good protein as well just again for the microbes that are in it i like to eat that yeah but i like to get after the bacon and eggs in the morning and um i don't really if i eat that even at like seven o'clock that'll that'll float me till about noon Whereas if I have a bowl of cereal or toast or whatever, you know, I'm hungry again by 10. Yeah. So, and then, yeah, for lunch, I'll eat like a little chickpea salad or some sort of, you know, quinoa, some sort of like hearty vegetable. Um, And then, yeah, a little salad or something for dinner a lot of times. But yeah, I like the protein up in the morning. It It feels the best. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. And I mean, the the probiotic nature of having something like 
like yogurt. I mean, I try and yogurt or we often eat natto. We do rice a lot in the mornings. Mm-hmm. Um, egg, rice, natto, some sauerkraut, kimchi. Nice. Get, get all yeah. get sort of all the all the good stuff in there. Get the bichrome, the bichrome, <laughs> microbiome going. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, what did you eat when you were growing up? What's your family cook? Oh man, did you guys do fermenting and stuff? Is that no. where your love of fermentation came from? No, no, that started probably four years ago. Growing mm-hmm. up, I the things I remember specifically. So, one of the questions was was the first thing you cooked and the first thing i remember cooking like if like if i can like loosely defining cooking was nachos and it's not like nachos like you think it was like putting tortilla chips on the cookie tray and melting pieces of cheese onto those tortilla chips this was like a late night snack with me and my dad watching letterman basically um i also remember a lot of steak and salad which is kind of a nice it's yeah. a nice combo. Like, yeah. I remember my, my parents, like, grilling a lot. Huh. Like, grilling a lot of steaks and with it as a side, usually some sort of a salad, corn on the cob. Yep. Just very nice, fresh vegetables and meat. I mean, rolls and stuff, but, like, th- that was, like, bread and, like, it was all pretty fresh cooked. Oh, um, you can get really good tomatoes in Memphis. Yeah. There's a town right outside of Memphis called Ripley, Ripley, Tennessee. And uh, they have legendary tomatoes. So, you know, if you, you in Memphis, you want to get a hold of the Ripley tomatoes. They're very awesome, very fresh, nice, and just so much flavor. And then the, the other thing that I remember my mom cooking a lot, for whatever reason, was salmon patties. Hmm. Like shredded salmon, you know, yeah. like, like tuna looks. Yeah, yeah. But then, like, just pan-fried in oil. Right. Uh, those were really tasty. But I don't, I don't, I guess, I don't know why that was such a... Such a thing. I mean, such a thing, but I, just you know, family stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my family definitely had those sort of like key recipes that became part of like the canon, right? I yeah. mean, there are recipes I remember my mom cooking. My mom would make asabuco when it was somebody's uh-huh. birthday. That was always like a celebration dish. Yeah. And then my dad, I, I didn't think about it at the time. Now being in the food business and sort of eating much more seasonally, I realized that this is this is. I mean, my dad was eating very seasonally because. There was a period of time in the summer where as soon as corn was available in the Northeast, mm-hmm. we would have corn every day. That's awesome. <laughs> as fresh as possible, we would have corn on the cob every day, and then we would have Swiss chard when it was available fresh in the Northeast every day. My father would make it, and it, to the point that I remember my little brother one day standing up at the table. He must have been like 10 years old and being like, I'm not eating any more Swiss chard. <laughs> like, I'm done. That's it. <laughs> Swiss chard burnout. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, when I was a kid, we, we also had a, a thing where my dad became sort of, we used to, we would joke that he was Mr. Mom when I was a teenager because uh-huh. we moved cross country and he became Mr. Mom and my mom worked. And he, up to that point, had done most of his like cooking at a firehouse. So oh. he was used to cooking <laughs> for a bunch of adult right. men who were really hungry. Uh-huh. So, you know, there were only four of us. And I remember dinners where we'd sit down and there would be steak and bread and salad and corn and broccoli and Swiss chard. And it just, you know, like too on much. and on and on. <laughs> that's the thing. Yeah, that's something I I don't know if I struggle with it. But, like, whenever I, uh, I'm trying to, like, make sure the kids eat enough, I'm like, am I, like, being, like, too, like... I don't want to like force food down their throat. That's such such an like American. Yeah. You like eat past the past when you're hungry. I don't definitely don't want to like instill that in into them. So, you know, I try to start them actually with like a little less than I think they're going to eat. Sure. And then if they're hungry, 
you get seconds. Yeah, I mean, that's a, you know, I, I think you hit on something. I think about that a lot, too. I mean, you have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old, and mm-hmm. I have a six-year-old and almost three-year-old, and, you know, it, they're, I find them to be very fickle. Some days, some mornings, you know, Moxie will eat, you know, she'll want three servings at breakfast, yeah. and some mornings she won't eat any. Yeah. And it's just like this up and down and, you know, you kind of, you know, especially for, for me, especially in the mornings, like she needs some kind of protein in the morning, mm-hmm. you know, cause she's getting up, she's having breakfast at seven o'clock and, you know, she's a growing kid. And I know that her attitude is so different if she doesn't eat and it yeah. causes her to have problems with kids in school. Hangry. Yeah. She totally it's gets real. hangry. It's it is, real. It is hundred percent real. <laughs> <laughs> As adults, I think it's real too. I mean, oh, it's, yeah. it's real for us, but we, we deal with it in different ways. Mm-hmm. We recognize it and are able to kind of like hold it back a little bit. Yeah. I just, I kind of go in a lockdown mode. I know anything that comes in my mouth is going to be rude and unkind. Yeah. So if I'm hangry, I just don't say anything until I've had yeah. something to eat. <laughs> yeah. But that's, but that takes a huge amount of self-awareness. Yeah. Right. And, so yeah, I mean the, the the kids. I mean I you know I feel like it's a huge fight, and one of the things that I don't want to do is I you know I grew up this way, whatever was being served for dinner is what was for dinner, mm-hmm. and at a certain point when I was old enough, I remember you know the answer was if you don't like it, go make something yourself. But mm-hmm. I'm not going to make you more food, right? Because you decided you didn't like it, and right now I can't quite yet do that. I can't tell my six year old, well, if you don't like it, go make your own dinner. Yeah, I I yeah I know what you mean. I I do that with Chloe now. Chloe's nine. Um, I'll make something, yeah, for example, like this, this tahini chickpea salad I made last night, I had leftovers of that today, and I ate that, and I said, you can have this, if you don't want it, you can make whatever you would like, and right. she wanted a tuna fish sandwich, and I was right. like, eh, go ahead and make it, but yeah. she knows how. Sure. So I think she, that makes sense. I was talking with another another parent recently about the this same issue, and what they said basically is that in their house, the rule is that if you leave the table, you can't come back. Oh. So, you know, if you're sitting at dinner and you decide you're done, because this is something that sometimes Frank will do, but I think it's more a ploy not to go to sleep than because he's really hungry. Yeah. He'll be like, but I want to eat more. Yeah. After bath and we're like, you know, reading yeah. a bedtime story. He's like, I'm hungry. And, you know, my friend said that the, the way that his family deals with it is that when you leave the table, that's it. So you better eat what you're going to eat and you know i think that what's that what what has then happened is that his some sure children have gone to bed a little hungry a couple mm-hmm. times and then they probably don't go to bed hungry Just anymore eat a good breakfast the <laughs> yeah, next day exactly <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not going to starve to death overnight yeah um we're going to take a take a short break um and hear from hear from one of our sponsors here at heritage radio and uh, when we come back we'll keep talking kids and food and brewing awesome your garden it's the way you live and there's so much to know but you have help bonnie plants now with bonnie's app homegrown you can learn about veggie and herb varieties track and record your garden with photos and notes share on facebook and twitter and so much more how'd you ever grow without it 
Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. The one and only Dave Arnold brings the noise to Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday on Cooking Issues. Coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick and Brooklyn. If the bomb was going to drop and you only had 15 minutes, which is like, I can, I can make a sandwich in 15 minutes. He would be eating a sandwich. I'd kiss my wife, make a sandwich. If you believe that it's all about to be over, why eat healthy? Not a freaking Neanderthal. I like a tempered ice cream sandwich. But it's the only way to get around it if you're a party master because you, you're going to wind up, like, your kitchen's going to fill with dishes. And is Some there... people have commercial dishwashers in their house. Who? I've seen them. Who? I've seen them. Who? <laughs> really rich people. <laughs> For more mile-a-minute knowledge from Dave and the crew, listen to Cooking Issues, available on Heritage Radio Network, iTunes, and Stitcher. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. Today I've been talking with Daley Crafton about our kids and eating and design. Um, I want to move now into talking about fermentation, something that uh, yeah, you and I are both very much uh, invested in, in love with, fascinated by. Um, so tell me about how did you first get into fermenting stuff? Started with beer, as I think a lot of people probably do. Uh, it's it started a good place with, to start. Yeah, it started with drinking a lot of beer. <laughs> Because it tastes good. Um, and you can live off it, right? And you can for at least 40 days, as the monks found out. Um, so a friend, I, you know, I'd been drinking a lot of beer and going on and on about, oh, yeah, maybe one day I'll make some beer. And a friend for Christmas or birthday, I don't remember, a gift came from a friend. And it was a, a kit, you know, to make to make beer it was one it was called brew in a barrel i think hmm. uh and it, it, it was like it was very kind of homemade <laughs> looking which is fine because it got me into the it got me into it so uh, it was just the ingredients so i ended up going out and buying the uh all the stuff and i made that and it turned out pretty good uh and Sounds like, sounds like you had a better experience than I did. The first beer I made was horrible. Oh, really? I mean, I drank it all. I was like yeah. 19. Right, because you because I fuzzed. Fig- yeah, I mean, I figured out that you could, I, could, I couldn't I could go to the liquor store and buy beer right. when I was in college, when I first got into college. But I could go to the homebrew store, which was like right down the street, mm-hmm. and I could buy all the stuff to make it. So my friends and I were like, oh, we're just going to make our own. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. And we made it, and of course, like, we drank it all <laughs> like faster than we could make it, but it was not... Good. Not good beer. Oh, it was not good. Was it like not good? This is it like just. I even, mean, what even I learned worse than like like macro water beer or just. I mean, what I learned later is that we were not. It really comes down to temperature. I mean, that was the thing. There were, that beer tasted bad because it fermented way too warm. I so I see. mean, we were making an ale that was fermenting, you know, basically in our college dorm kitchen, where the average temperature was. We were on the top floor of the building. I mean, it was probably in the seventies. Yeah. So, I mean, we were just fermenting it way too warm, and I didn't, you know, at the time, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know, well, if I if the place is that warm, I should use a Saison yeast. And Correct. You know, I mean, you know, there are ways to, around that. We were making, like, brown ale. Right. And it just tasted <laughs> Oops. terrible. <laughs> yeah, the, I guess maybe that's what was uh, lucky. My first kit that was given to me was a farmhouse ale. And, you know, you can ferment that all the way up to like 90 degrees yeah. and that's appropriate for like farmhouse saison so i just got lucky i guess yeah i loved it and the thing that has stuck with me 
from beer brewing is just the the microbial aspect of it. I really, really, really love the the yeast part. Um, so much so that that's kind of where my beer path has taken me is down this wild yeah, I mean, yeast. You've, you've harvested a bunch of yeast from your own backyard in Williamsburg, right? Yeah, they and they have like nuanced characteristics. They're, you know, they're definitely similar to each other. They're more similar to each other than they are to any other any commercial yeast I've ever used. Right. It's definitely I've not gotten any sort of sour anything yet. I think just because the way I'm doing it tends to probably select for Saccharomyces. Mm. So everything I've gotten so far has been pretty Saccharomyces-ish. Saccharomyces is like the standard yeast yeah. for making beer. Which is cool because, I mean, what a lot of people talk about when they sometimes get, you know, they say their beer got infected with a wild mm-hmm. yeast, really they're talking about Britannomyces yeah. more often, right? They're talking about it going super, super dry and getting a little bit funky yeah, and not necessarily being in line with what we consider to be the standard beer yeasts. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but like the thing, like that's the thing too, though, is I kind of, I'm not so into like this nitty gritty part of brewing. Which like makes collecting and using wild yeast being like, well, it's wild yeast. What right. do you expect? <laughs> so like that kind of like, especially for people that are super persnickety about style, like that kind of absolves me of having to be terribly. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, you bring up a really good point. I mean, I you know, I've I've always you know, my I went on to brew. I mean, I didn't stop brewing after the beer sucked. I you know yeah. went on and like have made what I consider to be some really great beers. But I was never beholden to this thing that I think happens in the brewing community where people you know, there's all of these incredibly well defined styles, mm-hmm. and they'll have very specific guidelines, and people want to get their beer judged to see how well it does against those guidelines. And yeah. for me, that part was never interesting. The part yeah. that was interesting interesting and awesome is that i could make something really delicious Mm -hmm. at home with the help of these incredible microbes that you can't even see really yeah and that they're doing all the work and if you give them the right environment to like flourish yeah produce a really awesome product that you can drink yeah it's true i mean and that the flavor profiles are incredible i mean the other thing that i always loved about homebrewing people have asked me over the years like wow why didn't you make wine because honestly and and i know you know i'm not trying to like downplay the winemaking but at home Winemaking is not as nuanced as beer making. You can go to a homebrew supply shop, like you could come to the Brooklyn Kitchen, and mm-hmm. with the ingredients there, there is an almost infinite number of different beers you could make. Yeah. And to me, that was always super fascinating, that every single one, you could just have some tiny variable, and they're different. And that's, you know, we're at a time and a place where we talk about tasting things, whether it's cheese or bread or beer or kombucha or yogurt or meat and, you know, our, the human tongue can can you know describe and understand all these nuances, and you can make that at home. Yeah, I think that is the the thing I do respect about people that are persnickety about style. You know, um, Charlie Papazian's of the world, like he's just got an incredible palate, yeah. you know, and can detect it. And, and I think it's it's important to the to the movement, I guess, right. to be able to like to be able to like define and, and if you if it's something that needs to be corrected to know how to do it or like at least to have an expert to tell you yeah. how you can correct this <clears throat> so it's not for me that's not my particular that's not the angle i'm coming from sure. on it but I, I i i understand and respect that that angle i think it's important i think that you know i think that respect is probably a very important 
value in the in that world. I think that sometimes the people that are doing it a little differently, that camp doesn't respect this camp or whatever. Right. Um, but I think as long as you're like really passionate and trying to make a something really quality, whether you're like trying to like adhere to a style or just like get your mind around wild yeast, um, both of those elements are are important. I, you know, I've gotten good at brewing yeah. like either culturing wild I can, yeast. I can corroborate that yeah. statement. <laughs> it's never going to be a pilsner quote unquote or like a like a, a true lager or whatever. Right. But it is good beer. How and many different yeasts have you sort of identified and, and captured in your own backyard? So I I personally have three blends that I've captured. One blend is from and a blend is uh, is two or more yeasts one is from my strawberries i guess to set it up like it's not gonna taste anything like strawberries yeast eats sugar saccharomyces eats sugar so um it can be found in abundance on fruiting plants so i got one off strawberries i got one off of a blackberry in my backyard and i got one off of a log so i have these three blends that i've captured the strawberry one I sent into Jeff Mello at Bootleg Biology, and it had two Saccharomyces in it. Oh, he, so he did the work of actually. He like, did. He isolated yeah. and and cataloged them, and there he's he's banked them. He's got a big bank, and so it's amazing. And that's bootlegbiology.com. Is that where people that can is find correct? That? Yeah. And Jeff is awesome, and I'm looking forward to seeing his talk at American Homebrewers Association. My favorite one though is the log. The log is a really cool story. Which, can you tell? I mean, I know I, it already. But yes, you tell the log story. I'll tell the story. <laughs> so. I, I like to burn wood in my fireplace, fire pit, and um, I go to the park sometimes just to fall, forage for fallen branches and things. And probably not supposed to do that, but it's I don't know, it's dead wood, should be fine. So I I go and get it and take it home and burn it. And then I found this one log that was really beautiful, and uh, I picked it up and I took it home, intending to burn it. But then as I looked at it, I was like, wow. This is a beautiful piece of wood. It was like weathered. It looked like driftwood. Been sitting there for years. Clearly, I got it. Like, like, so I jumped over one of the fences into the beds at the park to get it. Which again, you're not supposed to do that, but whatever. It's fine. Um, I got the wood, didn't I? So I had this piece of <laughs> and wood. You made the beer. Yeah, and I made the beer, and we wouldn't. Have, and so yeah, I got this wood. It was beautiful. So I decided not to burn it. I was like, maybe I'll lacquer it and make a little piece out of it. But then as I got more and more into wild. Uh, yeast and wild fermentation i was reading about how like barrel aged beers are like got all this microbes living in the wood barrel and they come out and ferment the beer and then you know in olden times apparently there was like the family paddle or whatever that you would stir the beer with and they thought it was magic but it was just it was just the yeast yeast living living, yeah yeah. munching on the little tiny wood sugars like it's very slowly over time i mean that's essentially what decay is is little microbes just eating away at that thing, uh, you know, in the elements as well. But so I was like, I bet you there is a super colony of yeast in this log. <laughs> so I brewed up a five gallon batch and put the log down in it and put a rock on the log to weight it down. And sure enough, just like the next day, whoa, mad Krausen. Krausen is like the layer of yeast on top, just bubbling up. It was awesome. Problem was this, the rock that I used leached a bunch of mineral flavors into the beer, so that batch was terrible. But then I made a second batch with it, and it without the rock, and it was awesome. 
So I think the lesson here is that everybody shouldn't be making should be making log beer, right? right. I mean, I I sort of you know to play this out into the future, I think it'd be fascinating if. You know, you have craft breweries all over the place. You have people talking about sourdough, and you can capture mm-hmm. sort of local yeast microbes anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. I think it would be really amazing if you got to a point where breweries were making. They're starting and capturing to. Their yeast. I mean, they are starting to, right? I mean, it's it's a it's a really to me that's a fascinating, amazing. We're in an amazing time because that's how everybody did it in the past, but they didn't know that's how they were doing it. Right. They and now we've magic. got, yeah. and then we got to the point of having it be completely commercialized, right. and everybody wanted things to be sterile, and you kill all the old bacteria, and you put in the yeast you want, and now sort of returning back to this yeast of place, I think is really cool. Yeah, there's a guy named Christopher from NYU. He discovered I can't remember how, but he's he's a journalism student. And he went, he's writing about terroir, terroir mm. in New York City ter- terroir. terroir. I can't say that word. Um, but he interviewed me about the the hyperlocal yeast that I'm capturing. Uh, Catskill Brewery has a wild ale out right now. It is the cloudiest, turbid beer I have ever ever seen. Like it's cla- like you think your homebrew is cloudy. This beer is like drinking. It's like milk beer almost. <laughs> Uh, but it was really good, and it, it actually reminded me a lot, uh, like f- like flavor profile wise, of like the stuff that I'm making with these strains yeah. that I captured. It had that like, just like that back end bite. Well, I mean, you know, it, it's well, I was in Japan recently, and actually at the so at the next Sumo Stew event um, that I'll be hosting uh, with Michael Harlan Turkel, who's also a host here on Heritage Radio. Um, his show is called The Food Scene. Mm-hmm. We host a, a party every other month to watch Sumo from Japan at the Brooklyn <laughs> Brewery. The next one is coming up on. Uh, on the 17th of May, um, sumostew.com, but we're, we're actually going to be pouring a couple of sakes there that are made from wild-captured yeast. Awesome. There's a sake brewery called Amabuki, and they do one with a strawberry yeast uh-huh. and one with a sunflower yeast. And when, when our friend Chizu originally got in touch with us, and you know she's a brand rep for a bunch of different sake companies, and we said, oh, do you want to be a part of this? She said, oh, yeah, I'm going to bring this strawberry sake. And of course, the place my brain went was that it was going to be some pink beverage strawberry flavored mixed with strawberry extract and i was like okay i mean it's free but do we really yeah. want that and then she brought it and opened it up and i tasted it. I was like this is incredible yeah and she said yeah it's made from strawberry yeast and i said oh you didn't say it's that different. you called it strawberry different. sake you need to this i was like you really should change the whole marketing of this like you need to market it as strawberry yeast sake. that's one of the things that i've like find a I guess yeah. I guess difficulty is like describing the yeast because right. I know as soon as I like the only way I can describe it is where I caught it from. Right, the origin. Because I don't, it's it's not any sort of market. I don't know what it's going to be like until I brew with it. Sure. Uh, so, but it, like, you, but it also is not necessarily native to strawberries. No, you just happened to capture yeah, it off a strawberry exactly. where it so was living. The description of any yeast that I capture ends up being very wordy. Yeah. This is a yeast I captured off a of strawberry, but you should not expect it to taste anything like strawberries. <laughs> That's like the whole description. <laughs> well, we uh, we've we've reached the the end of our time here together on the on the radio. But I wanted to give you an opportunity if you have any events coming up at Lockstep, or you know, if you want to talk for a minute about the poster shop you guys run out of there uh, to tell people about how they can find you. Yeah, we're we're Lockstep Studio branding and identity studio, but we're. And we are focused on craft breweries for the design work we do and local community businesses because we love our neighborhood and we want to see it thrive. And so we're hoping to partner with local companies to do their design work. We have a design, we have a poster shop ourselves. So we are a local business. It's just design posters that we've made. 
uh, that we think are nice, and it's at 311 Graham Avenue, 11211. Um, just go to lockstepstudio.com and shoot us an email, because right now it's open sporadically, basically as like as we feel like it. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, and I will actually, I'll be at the Craft Brewers Conference in Philadelphia, and uh, the Homebrewers Conference in Baltimore, if anybody listening is going to either one of those, hit me up, we can chit-chat about whatever. Cool. Well, thanks, Daly, for coming on the show today. Really, thank you, really Harry. Appreciate it's been it. awesome. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Big thank you to Kristen Baylor, who's my producer, and David Tatashore for engineering. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. And follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Foodballer. Take care. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.